welcome to today's episode of the Music Talk Show. In this episode, we're going to discuss popular music cultures in the 20th century and the 21st century and think about the ways that genres and forms of music and cultures developed and changed in relationship to media technologies, but also changed in terms of articulations of politics and stylistic characteristics. And so in this episode, we find overlaps between two current research projects at the Department of Musicology at the University of Oslo. And we'd like to start off by introducing ourselves in these projects briefly. Thank you for this introduction, dear Veronica. <laughs> I'm very happy that we're doing this episode together and bring together our really fascinating research. And the more that I talk to you about what you're doing, I, I find that there are like so many cool overlaps, even though we focus on very different uh, topics. Yeah. My name is Mirjana Plath, and I am a doctoral research fellow at the Institute for Musicology at the University of Oslo. And in my work, I am looking at how music spread to other places around the world. To narrow it down, I focus on Berlin and Vienna and how popular music theater traveled from there to Stockholm. And I'm very interested in the ideas that music promotes to its listeners. And in my thesis, I am looking at the 1920s to the 1940s. So that was a time in which very radical ideas were promoted all over the world. Um, and music reacted to that or was used. And um, I find that very fascinating to research about. What about you? So my name is Veronika Muchic and I'm a postdoc researcher at IMV at the moment. And um, my research is concerned with popular music right now. So <laughs> really focusing on what's happening at the moment, specifically focusing on the context of digital media technologies. So one of my main focuses has been Spotify and music streaming, but I've also been interested more recently in TikTok and other digital media technologies. So I think today is going to be really fun to think about how music culture and, and how technologies and politics changed in the 20th century and then hopping to the 21st century and thinking about these changes right now as well. So I'm really excited about this. But now we've been talking a lot already, so I, I um, suggest to, to get started with some popular music theater. Um, and then we can discuss how this might link our projects after the song. So here it goes. So we've just heard some popular music theater. So Miriana, tell us, is that the kind of research that you're doing? Is that the kind of material that you're looking at? Well, it kind of is. Um, just a hundred years older. <laughs> um, so I am researching about operetta or popular music theater, um, which has its origin in Paris with the composer Jacques Offenbach in the 1850s. But very quickly, operetta was also well received in other European cities and the genre got local variations in different places. So there was Viennese operetta and Berlin operetta. There was an active production of operetta for roughly 100 years, up to almost like the Second World War. And um, the genre operetta is characterized by mostly comical plots and with spoken dialogue. So the music doesn't continue throughout the whole piece. And it's mostly with a happy ending. To give you an idea of how Viennese operetta sounded like in the 19th century, 
I picked a musical example of the Johann Strauss operetta Die Fledermaus, The Bat. Let's listen to it. So this did sound a bit different from the first example that we listened to. Mirjana, would you like to talk a bit about what the song is about for our non-German understanding listeners out there? <laughs> sure, yeah. Let's talk about uh, the content of this song. This is a play with different social classes, which was very common in operetta of the 19th century. There was a lot of masquerades and mingling. So in Die Fledermaus, the maid Adele can dress up as a woman of high society at a masked party. In this song, she mocks her employer, who almost uncovers her secret identity. However, throughout the party, she can maintain her masquerade. But... Eventually, as always in operetta, there's a strict rule that everyone stays within their own class. So there is no rise and mingling between classes um, in the end. It's not like the fairy tale of Cinderella, for instance, where a poor girl gets to marry the prince. In operetta, the poor girl has to turn out to be a secret royal by birth, and this enables her to marry the prince. Or the poor girl just stays poor and ends up with a poor boy. The music is also very characteristic for operetta in the 19th century. Um, we heard that there was a waltz in the song, so dance rhythms are dominating all music for operettas, which is unlike opera. And the singing style is very operatic, on the other hand. So it's uh, quite a sophisticated technique, um, which is required for the performers on stage, which makes it very close to opera again. But then again, when we look at the 20th century, the end of operetta coincides with the rise of the musical, which was less European-based and instead popular music theatre from Broadway in New York and the West End in London started to dominate the global scenes. And early examples would be The Sound of Music with music by Richard Rogers, And it was made into a famous movie with Julie Andrews in 1965, which many people probably know. Um, and a fun fact, the movie and the musical are not very well known in Germany and Austria. I guess you can agree, Veronika. You're from Austria, I'm from Germany. Yeah, very much so. I think that I was introduced to The Sound of Music by my international friends, actually. So yes, not very well known. <laughs> Yeah, um, we will not go to the 1950s yet, but let's listen to an example of the 1930s, which is Im Weißen Rössel, or in English, The White Horse Inn. It's a recording of the singer Max Hansen with the Paul Godwin Jazz Orchestra. You are listening to the music talk show at Radio Nova. Today we are talking about popular music cultures in the 20th and 21st centuries. We listened to Max Hansen. Um, he was a huge star in Germany, Austria and Scandinavia in the 1930s. Um, and because of his critical attitude towards Hitler and his Jewish heritage, he left Germany in the 1930s and focused on working in Scandinavia. So he was a very important figure for the transfer of popular music theater from Berlin and Vienna to Stockholm. Thinking about the music of the song, there's a very big difference to operetta from the 19th century and Strauss from the first example that we listened to. And jazz became more influential, so combining the new and modern music from America into the sound of operetta was very important in the 20th century. 
And also when we look at the singing style of Max Hansen, it's almost as if he is speaking. It's not very operatic anymore. So genre is very fluid and researchers tend to talk about popular music theater instead of operetta when they do research about this music, which I think is a very nice link to the 21st century popular music where genre is also negotiated in many ways. Yes, uh, thank you, Miriana. I think your, your second example, especially, and this idea about how different genres change over time and also change in, in the context of cultural change and transfer is very interesting and links very well to um, 21st century popular music as well. Because the idea that genre has become fluid or is increasingly bridging styles has also been central in discussions um, in popular music culture today. And this idea, for instance, has been associated with the success of artists like Billie Eilish, whose work blends influences from the singer-songwriter tradition, but also electronic music and hip-hop. Or uh, Lil Nas X, whose hugely successful hit Old Down Road in 2019 blends influences from country and rap. Um, and I would like to listen to a song by Billie Eilish that really showcases her blending of different styles. You are listening to the music talk show at Radio Nova and today we are talking about popular music cultures in the 20th and 21st century. We just listened to an example from the 21st century, Billie Eilish, Bad Guy. And um, Veronica, why don't you tell us more about this song? Yes, so as we were talking about popular music has been characterized by the blending of different styles and genres for a very long time. And Billie Eilish really illustrates this idea in the 21st century. So in the song, we've heard a driving beat combined with whispery vocals that really strongly foreground um, the tradition of singer-songwriter or maybe even crooning, linking back to the beginning of the 20th century and to the emergence of electric studio technology and studio recording. So in general, this idea that popular music is becoming increasingly fluid or that genre is dead, this is not something new, as we have heard from you, Miriana, as well. But there are two characteristics that I would like to talk about that I think make it specific in the context of contemporary popular music culture. And the first one is the idea that the fluidity of genre is somehow intensified by changes in media technology. So there's this idea that with online media technology and with music streaming, music has become more accessible and also the ways that popular music becomes popular changes as well. So there's this idea that in a lot of ways, um, traditional channels and also traditional categories of music don't really matter as much as they did before. Secondly, this idea has also been tied to the idea that young artists and listeners don't really characterize themselves in terms of their social identities any longer. Popular music genres for a long time have been associated with different groups of people. Um, so for instance, a genre like pop music has been coded as a very feminine genre and a genre like rock has been associated with male, specifically white musicians. So all of these codings, um, it is suggested now, 
don't matter as much as they did before. But I want to play another example and then think about the ways that these ideas about fluidity also have limits. This is Tyler, the creator, with his 2019 song Earthquake. I chose this example to think more critically about this idea about genre fluidity and specifically as it is tied to the idea about transcending identity. Because it has become quite clear that some artists are allowed to transcend identity or um, perceived to be able to do that and some artists don't. And in the context of popular music culture, a lot of the times what happens is that black artists specifically keep being tied to genre ideas that are associated with racial identity. So for instance, Tyler, the creator, who we've just heard, in 2021 a Grammy for this record in the category Rap Album of the Year. And so he turned to the press later on to really question the idea that this music was rap. And he suggested, as did a lot of other artists as well, who have had similar experiences, that their music is categorized as hip-hop, as rap, or other genres that have been associated with black racial identity, not because it sounds like it, but because really ideas about identity govern these categorizations. So, yeah, this is just a very interesting example to think more critically about who is perceived to be able to leave identity behind and who maybe isn't. And I think that's something that also fascinates me so much about music research, to look at all these stereotypes or patterns that we think in. Really cool. Yeah, thank you for that really interesting example. I think it also links nicely to to politics. Um, and I think this really brings us um, back to your research, Miriana, as well, and um, to a very different, I think, perspective on to politics and a different articulation of political messages um, in the 20th century and in operetta at that time. Yeah, you're right. Because um, I think when we look at the German music production of the late 1920s and even the 1930s, we can find very interesting examples of how music can be political and we can see how artists of the time used music to question current ideas of their time. And of course, music was always used by different kinds of parties to promote certain ideologies among the people. But for today, I only picked one example of how music was used by the people who were opposed to the ideas of national socialism in Germany. But yeah, I, I just want to say that we have to keep in mind that music also works the other way around, um, convincing people of racist or nationalistic ideas, for instance. At the first glance, the following song seems very innocent. It also comes from the popular music theater play Im Weißen Rössel, the White Horse Inn, that we listened to before. And the musical theater play was really successful and was translated into many languages. And it was also played on the West End in London and on Broadway in New York, for instance. So it was mainstream music of that time. So now we will listen to the English version of the song. And it's a recording from the 1960s. So the sound is a bit different to what it was like in the 1930s when it premiered in Germany. Get on with you're listening to the Music Talk Show at Radio Nova. 
Today we are talking about popular music cultures in the 20th and 21st centuries. Mirjana, would you like to tell us what we just listened to? <laughs> yes, um, so we listened to an English translation of the song Sigismund. As we could hear now, even in this English translation, there is a very close connection between cabaret and operetta. So if we listen to the text of the song today, it sounds just like an innocent, funny little song about a handsome guy called Sigismund and how a lot of women fall in love with him. However, in the 1930s, people could notice a connotation of the name Sigismund that most of us are not aware of today. Because Sigismund stands for the Jewish stereotypical name Sigismund, and this song converts the anti-Semitic depiction of the ugly Jew, as it was promoted by National Socialists, by singing about the beauty of a man called Sigismund and how women really fall in line because he's so handsome. So, yeah, the song totally mocks the ideal stereotype of the German, how the Nazis saw it. And against this backdrop, popular music theatre worked as a form of political satire, making fun of the ridiculous ideas of racism. The song never actually mentions that Sigismund is Jewish, so the meaning of the song is quite implicit and could appear very unpolitical. So only in the context of knowing all this background history about stereotypes, it unfolds another meaning. And um, this is also the case for the next example that I want to show. This next song that I picked for today's show is from 1938. And at this time, the Nazis were already in power and the song was produced in this context. It is called Kann den Liebe Sünde sein, or in English, Can Love Be a Sin? And it appeared in the music film Der Blaufuchs, The Blue Fox from 1938, as I said. It is performed by Zara Leander. Zara Leander was one of the best-paid film divas of the Nazi German film production. She was originally from Sweden and was discovered for the German market in 1936 in Vienna when she played the female lead in an operetta. And that was the starting point for a very successful career in Germany and Austria in Nazi times. The songwriter is really interesting when we look at this song. His name was Bruno Balz. And he was also one of the most successful music texters of his time, already in the 1920s and 1930s. However, he was homosexual and imprisoned for his sexual orientation in um, Nazi Germany. But he was just really, really talented. So the Nazis released him again um, for supporting and securing the success of the music industry in Germany, which is very impressive, I find. So even though he was observed very critically by the Nazis, Bruno Balz managed to write song lyrics that are actually very revolutionary. And knowing that he was gay, the chorus line of the next song, Can Love Be a Sin, gets another and um, very strong connotation and acclaim for free love. Let's listen to it. We just listened to a song which could be considered an early pride song, I would say. But Veronika, let's jump to the 21st century again. How is gender and sexuality negotiated in popular music today? Um, what a great um, music example, Mariana. Um, I think there's a really interesting shift from what you just have talked about, about 
ostensibly apolitical forms of popular music that have very strongly political messages if you just know them, if you just are able to, to understand the context or the background. To the 21st century, when I think um, articulating specific popular um, po political views has almost become a requirement for popular music artists. Identity politics and uh, questions about politics more broadly have also been deeply ingrained in the media culture. So there is a situation today where global capitalist companies like Spotify, for instance, regularly center gender equality or Pride Month, for instance. So, for example, Spotify has created a collection of playlists um, at the occasion of Pride Month. And this also um, includes the playlist Pride Party. So here, again, we see a very um, strong shift from implicit political messages to a mainstreaming of specific um, political views. And one could also take on a more critical perspective onto these changes um, and see them in the context of queer baiting or pinkwashing. But let's listen to one of the songs on uh, Spotify's Pride Party playlist. So this is Robin with her 2010 song, Dancing on My Own. You are listening to the music talk show at Radio Nova. Today we are talking about popular music cultures in the 20th and 21st centuries. And we just listened to Robin Dancing on My Own from 2010. What a wonderful song. Thank you, Veronika, for picking that one. <laughs> yeah, we're in party mode here at the studio for sure. Um, so uh, with this song, I wanted to illustrate how a shift has happened from ostensibly apolitical popular music toward the foregrounding of politics in popular music culture in the context of streaming technology. And so this very smoothly leads us into the final section of today's show, where we are going to focus on media technological change in relationship to changes in aesthetics and style. And so with this, I'm leading back to you, Miriana, and your research. Thank you. Um, let's talk about how technology really strongly influenced our music or popular music over the time. So... When we look at the music history of the 20th century, technological developments strongly influenced the music production and industry. Um, let's take the example of music recording. Um, the gramophone was invented in the late 19th century and gained huge popularity in the following decades. So in the US, almost every home owned a gramophone in the late 1920s. And this also had a huge impact on the music in operettas and popular music theater. So, for example, the sound quality of early gramophones was not as good as today. So the singing voice of opera arias was very difficult to understand when played from a gramophone record. So this is one of the reasons why operetta singers of the 1920s and 30s used a very different singing technique when they recorded operettas. And we could hear that several times today already. So um, it doesn't sound like opera and the singing very often resembles the talking voice in the 1920s. And the uprise of the record industry also meant that it became very easy to promote single songs from an operetta to a very large audience. 
And this meant that song texts of operettas tended to be more universal and understandable out of the context of a theater piece, instead of being closely interwoven with this plot. So now we're going to listen to a dance band recording of an operetta number. It's from Paul Abraham's Die Blume von Hawaii, The Flower of Hawaii. Um, and the song is called My Little Boy. And the piece was premiered 1931 in Leipzig in Germany. And now we're listening to a Danish interpretation by Leo Mathiesen, who was a famous jazz musician of the 1930s and 40s in Denmark. As I mentioned before, this recording is in Danish and shows how operetta was an international genre in the 1930s. The music really traveled around the world and was translated into many languages. And um, with this example, we can see how politics can also be connected to music production. Um, the composer of this song, Paul Abraham, was very successful in the early 1930s. He worked in Berlin, but because he was Jewish, he left Germany when the Nazis gained power. His music was categorized as degenerate art and couldn't be played on the German theater stages anymore. He moved to Budapest and um, later Paris and New York, but he could never continue his success there. And when he returned to Germany in 1956, he was mentally ill and died four years later in Hamburg. What we can hear from this music example that I just played is that um, music was taken out of context from theater stages and used as dance music, broadcasted on radio and as gramophone recordings. So only the chorus is sung here. Maybe you noticed there was a lot of instrumental music and yeah, without vocals. And the lyrics of the verses were not important. So the music was not intended for, to be performed with the plot, but just for the music's sake, for dancing or for listening at home. Popular music theatre then developed even further around the middle of the 20th century. And if we look at Germany, the dictatorship of the National Socialists in Germany destroyed the creative hub of Berlin for operettas. So cities like New York and its Broadway or London with the West End became more and more influential for the production of popular music theater. So it's usually around the 1940s or 1950s that we also start to call popular music theater plays musical instead of operetta. So let's move on to one example of a Broadway musical from 1945. And I wonder if any one of the listeners recognizes this song. When you walk so we just listened to the musical Carousel with music by Richard Rogers, And we listened to the 1945 Broadway original cast with Christine Johnson. This song is probably very well known by football fans because it was covered by the Liverpool band Jerry and the Pacemakers in 1963. And today it is often sung by fans of the Liverpool Football Club to support their players. And this example also shows very nicely how music can change meaning in different contexts. And um, yeah, so let's switch again to the 21st century. Veronica, why don't you tell us more about how technologies or streaming platforms changed our popular music of today? Several stylistic changes have been associated with music streaming and more recently also the emergence of TikTok, which is um, understood as increasingly central in contemporary popular music. 
one of the things that have been trending due to TikTok recently is the use of previous recordings and the creation of remixes that either speed up or slow down songs. And I want us to listen to one of the biggest hits um, of this year so far in a sped up version. So this is Miguel's 2010 song, um, Sure Thing, Sped Up. Another idea of stylistic change that has been associated with music streaming and online popular music cultures more broadly is the idea of globalization or internationalization. So the idea that since all music, (laughs) quote unquote, all music is widely accessible now, people also are more interested and more able to listen to different kinds of music from different parts of the world. I think broad ideas like these have always to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, But at the same time, I think there is some new visibility for a wider range of languages and different regional music traditions in popular music today. So this is exemplified in the success of genres like reggaeton. Another example would be the success of K-pop as well for these tendencies. Yeah, and um, to conclude... Um, you were listening to the music talk show at Radio Nova and today Mirjana and Veronica talked about popular music cultures in the 20th and 21st centuries. So we hope that you've enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Um, and to close our show today, we're going to listen to Chicken Teriyaki by Rosalia. Bye. Bye. Rosalia.